before I deliver this message from our great God to you this morning, I want to just take a little moment here and just say thank you to Northwest Baptist Church, all of you who are part of this church and our friends for being so good to Margaret and myself. Um, oh, uh, many years ago, about uh, 13, 14 years ago, um, I experienced one of the greatest uh, heartaches I ever had in my entire life and watching a the church where I had ministered a long time sort of implode, and yet I came over here to be a part of this church and worship and serve the Lord here, and you have been good to us, and we know that, and we are thankful. I just want to publicly thank you for standing with us and enabling us to continue in effectual ministry in the work of the Lord. I'm not preaching regularly or pastoring a church anymore. I'm trying to leave some things in written form behind so that people who come along behind us can have these things after I'm in heaven. And, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff, but there's some things that God has put on my own heart personally that I'm trying to get done. And uh, I would just tell you that I'm looking forward to right away, in fact, in this next month, it starts tonight at midnight, I'm looking forward to actually uh, recording my first audio book, and I'll be doing the uh, the first, uh, or well, actually the last book that I published, What's So Wrong With Doing Right? Because I'm listening to what's going on, watching what's going on, and I'm finding fewer and fewer people read. And fewer and fewer people especially read books, I mean, paper books. So uh, I want to put something out there in audio form so that hopefully when somebody's on a long trip from the woodlands to their work downtown or from Houston to Dallas or wherever you might be going, you can just put that thing in there and listen to the listen to the information. So you pray, and I want to say thank you again for your goodness to Ms. H and myself. Today we stand at a major intersection in life. This time comes around about once a year, but it's a junction when we leave the old year and everything that was in it and everything that's back behind it, all the bad and all the good, it's all in the rearview mirror. And at the same time, we look around and there we are looking into the future. And this great door that's open, which will no doubt have many opportunities, but we'll have lots of trials. I think it's an unrealistic thought to believe that you can go through a brand new year without some measure of trials. Some things that you don't like, some things that will test your mettle. And if a believer, things that are designed by the devil to turn you away from your faith and to turn you to doubt and discouragement and maybe even quitting the Lord. The devil will do that to people and he does it all the time. So here we are at this junction. Back here is that, up here is this future. And as we're at this point here today, I want to talk to you about who we are at Northwest Baptist Church, I want us to think about what this community and the people outside this community who know about this church think about us. And I want to especially bring your attention to what God thinks about us, what he thinks about you. Our text is in the book of the Revelation. We're in the 20th chapter, or excuse me, in the third chapter and I'm not sure exactly what's happening here, to the, so don't pay attention to that. I can override it if I have to. Just know I happen to have one of those blaring voices, so I can do it. So 
In the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and I invite you to turn your attention to this place, and I'll read this text. It's a letter to a church by God. It's not a letter from the Apostle Paul or from Peter or one of these other writers, although those would be inspired too. This is a letter to a church in Turkey or Asia Minor, as it was called in those days, to a specific congregation, much like this congregation right here today. And it's a letter from God. Can you imagine God writing you a letter? You ever thought about what he might say if he wrote you a personal letter? A very personal letter? That's what he's doing to this church, these members of this church. Here's what he said. Unto the angel, the angel being the pastor, he's called that as a messenger. Angel is a, is a, uh, a, a Greek word that means messenger from a Greek word meaning messenger. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And that's mentioned, the seven stars and seven spirits, in the first chapter, just two chapters back from where we are here in this book of the Revelation. And here's what he says. I know thy works. Doesn't he always? Doesn't God know your works and everybody's works all the time? He knows everything. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. That is not a compliment. You think about it. You think you're one thing, he says, I know you're something else. Really a very quick challenge to this church. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. He not only says, you're not what you think you are, but he says, if you continue in the way you're going, you're going to die. Quite a shocking message from God. Verse 3, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Repent. All through the Bible, this word is used. Turn around. Don't keep going in the same direction. Repent is to go in a different direction toward God. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Wow. Reinforcing God saying, you better listen to what I say to you. You may not listen to mama. You may not listen to papa. You may not listen to your government or your preacher, but you better listen to me. God said, I'm telling you something, and if you don't do it, you're going to go in a bad direction, and you're going to suffer a bad end. Verse 4, vast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even in this church, they had a lot of waywardness and bad stuff we've just heard there were some godly people who were standing strong and who were standing right by the faith. Verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And listen to this very sobering verse 6. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's one thing to have ears, it's another thing to hear with your ears, to listen to the message of God, to see what's going on around you, to pay attention. I want to talk to you to begin here about what God had to say to this church. I want to just 
look at it in a little more detail so that you get a better understanding of the background of this church in Sardis. Sardis. He says, thou hast a name. The word name is from a Greek word, onoma, and it means this, according to W.E. Vine, who has an expository dictionary of, of uh, Greek words, he says, all that a name implies. Thou hast a name. That is what is implied by your name. The ideas, the connotations, and the ramifications of your name. All that a name implies of authority, of character, of rank, of majesty, of power, excellence, and then he puts an et cetera there, Mr. Vine, this expert scholar does, and just says it's what your name stands for, for the better or the worse, for the good or the bad. Modern usage has somewhat blurred the word name and blurred it with the name or with the word reputation. Um, really, Webster defines reputation as what people think about you, what, what your neighbors think, what your, your family thinks about you. What your people at work think about you. What generally they say about you, whether it's good or whether it's bad, that's your reputation. And a good reputation is a wonderful thing to have, but a bad reputation is like a shadow that follows you around and people can see it and people turn away from people with bad reputations. The New Testament uses the word reputation four times. Each time a different Greek word is used to translate into English reputation. But they all suggest a common idea, a common theme, and that is it's a theme of esteem. It's, a te it's, it's an idea of respect toward the person under consideration. However, sometimes the word doesn't talk about respect. Sometimes it talks about infamy. Sometimes the word reputation, talking about somebody that's just a low-down low down scoundrel, you know about some of those, and I'm not asking you for names, and I hope you're not putting any on anybody right here. I'm just telling you we know the real, real world of reputations, and it's out there. The word name, this one, this onoma, that's used right here in Revelation chapter 3, 1, not merely a reference to how this church uh, was called, that is, well, that's the Northwest Baptist Church. Or that's the Sardis Church over here. Or this is the New Testament Church in Jerusalem. This word name, as used in this reference, talks about how people feel. More like reputation. Here's what people think about you. And here's what I think about you. God's writing the letter, remember. The text tells us a lot of things that were generally esteemed about this church. They were thought in their own minds and by some people around to be very good people. In fact, if you notice, he praises them. For some of them were staunch. Some of them were uh, really faithful in a whole lot of the things that we would look at in a church and its members to say these are good traits right here. This church in Sardis had them. The immediate name was Sardis, but to bystanders, it meant thou livest and art dead. Most of the people who got close to the church at Sardis realized it's got a good show going on. It's got a lot of front up front stuff, but it's really dying on the inside. It's decaying. It's going downhill on the inside. Let me tell you a little about Sardis, this town a little away from Ephesus, which is on the coast of the Aegean Sea. This would be going eastward inland, this church of Sardis here. Sardis was a town. It was a wealthy town. It was the wealthy capital of Lydia where the dying of wool was discovered. This is where they 
they had lots of uh, sheep uh, growing and a lot of sheep and wool. And they're the people who learned how to dye it to different colors. So it always white. And they were very famous for this. It was also the seat of the licentious worship of a, of a goddess named Cybele. That's what they called her, C-Y-B-E-L-E. Cybele. And because of um, Cybele, they had actually begun to follow after the wealth and the ideas of Cybele. Even though they named the name of God, they were interested in Cybele and did a lot of undercover worship of Cybele. She was the goddess of Phrygia, this area around here. She went by the name of Artemis. You read her name in Acts chapter 19. It was Diana. These are all three terms talking about basically the same individual, depending on what part of the country in which you lived. She's believed to be the daughter of Zeus. You know, he's one of the Greek gods, the head of the Greek gods and mythical gods, but they believed in him. And the people of Sardis thought Sabelle was the goddess of nature and of fertility. You can see how this goddess thing tied in, these gods tied in with people's real lives. She made women get pregnant. She's the one who gave life to ladies. And she's also the one who gave crops, a, a good crop, uh, so that you'd have a crop failure. You'd have a profitable uh, cornfield or a profitable wheat field or whatever you're growing out here. This is the one they believed was controlling things around them. Cybele. And because of softness and luxury and apathy and immor immorality, Sardis was called in its day, it was known in its day and known historically as the city of death. Kind of strange, isn't it? That a town like this and a time like that would be so outwardly prosperous, but yet inside was dying. The city of death. This city and church lived in ease. It lived in luxury. It lived in splendor. They had everything together materially, but they were dead in their core. Somehow religion was just a coat, just something they put on. It didn't change the heart. You've heard readings from the Bible here today about if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. And there are a whole lot of people who put on a new coat without a real change in the heart. A coat called Christianity, but they're not changed inside. They've never really met the Savior and experienced the change that only he can make in a life. The name that thou livest was in contrast to reality. This is how God is addressed. You say you're alive, but I want to tell you something about the truth, about reality about yourselves. This church was dying. He said, thou art dead. It was not a complete death just yet. You see that in verse 2. He said, you have some things that remain, but he goes on to say, if you continue in the way that you're going and there's no repentance in your life, it will not be long till you will be dead. Here's how he put it. There were some things which remain that are ready to die. Think that through for a moment. Some things that remain that are about to die. You're in the decaying process on the inside. But the church was dying here, as you can see, rapidly dying. Here was a paradox of death under the name of life. We're the church of the living God. But yet God said, you're not. You just look like it outside. But I know who you are on the inside and what your hearts are. They were a picture of whom Paul uh, mentioned when he said they had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. He said that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. Boy, this is pretty scathing letter. 
you look at it and listen to it and begin to think it through, you realize he's not patting them on the back and complimenting them. He's giving them a little kick in the rear on the shins and saying, you need to wake up because you're going down and you need to change. You need to turn. My, it's good to have a good name. It's really a good thing to have a good name. But this church didn't have a good name. It's good to be accepted and have a good place and have money. But it's not good to be there where God is not number one. It's not good to be in that place where he's in the back seat and where self and where things are in charge here. I hope you know that you will always find God and excellence here at Northwest Baptist Church. I would hope that's what everybody in this church would think all the time, that I know where God is, and I can find Him, and I can be in the very presence of my God at the Northwest Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. That's what I want to be, and that's what I'm looking to be, in the very presence of God at this church all the time. So I want to just talk for a moment to you about this church, and uh, just tell you that it was a church that looked good on the outside, but it was not good on the inside. They needed some change in their lives. You have a good name, but this church didn't have a backing of that name. And they had a good name mainly within themselves. This is what they thought of themselves, but this on the other side, on the other hand, is what God thought of them. I need to talk to you for just a moment here about the fact that Northwest Baptist Church has a name. It's not just a church way back there in a well-off place in the world that we read about. It has very little bearing on us. Brothers and sisters, that church back there has a great deal of bearing on this church over here. It's very much like our church, I think. I don't think it's exactly like our church, but I'm not God. I'm not looking at all the things that he sees. But I ask you, what do you think this community this community, Oak Forest here, and the Heights over there on the other side south of the freeway. And over here uh, in this area around us, uh, Garden Oaks, what do you think these people think about us? Have you considered when they go to our website what they see? And I would say to a moment, a moment, I'm praying that God will lay on somebody's heart in this church to step up and say, I'll take charge of our website. There are a lot of needs. We have preaching and praying and giving, and we have deacons here that serve the Lord, and we have people who do the grounds outside. But we've been hurting for a long time on our website, and the evidence is we have some records to this effect. That most of the people, the new people who visited Northwest Baptist Church in the last two or three years started with the church's website. That's where the surge did. And you came and said, look at the website first to see what we believe. Thank the Lord, there are some good things there. But our website needs some attention. And I would tell you that Brother Darren is uh, very busy. You know that. He's busy. Listen, I've prepared sermons for 30 or 40 years, in fact, 60 years plus. And I want to tell you, to have a good sermon to preach every Sunday, and really you need about three every Sunday if you preach on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and Sunday night, and sometimes teach a Sunday school class. It's work. Ask Brother Eric. He's teaching. Ask Judy. She teaches in Sunday school here. To have a 
message, have a lesson prepared to present to a congregation that's meaty and good and well-delivered is a major chore. In the years that I spent pastoring churches and preparing sermons, I averaged, I kept record of this for a long time, I averaged at least 20 hours a week on every sermon I preached. And that's when you're in your study. That's not when you're looking over the budget. Or you're overseeing the grounds and making sure the lights are working and we need this one fixed right up here. That's not the time you spend in missionaries' lives like with the missionaries we have down there in Panama and then a bunch of others who are helped and sponsored by other churches that we help by. I mean, there's work to do. Running a church to a great degree is like running a business. There are business aspects to it, and we're not just a business for that sake, but there is a business aspect. We have to pay the bills. We have to take care of accounting. We have to answer to the Internal Revenue Service. We have to do all of those things. Plus, make sure this church building is clean. And there's always somebody who's getting a little bit sore about something that they're it's going on to church. They're not getting enough attention. Uh, they, they're not uh, uh, feeling like they're being uh, properly treated. And they're looking for some other place to go. And I'm going to tell you, it's always heartbreaking. I mean, the heart, most heartbreaking part of pastoring a church for me personally was people who get upset. And I'm running as fast as I can, but I can't keep up. I can't get around to everybody all the time and make all the calls and be always available on the phone and those things. It's a reality that goes on with the ministry. And sometimes when you're not able to keep up with the people, you hear that squeaking wheel pretty quick because they all have friends and they'll say, well, so-and-so and so-and-so, and it gets back, but... When you don't keep up with the website, it's not so squeaky. You don't hear that so much. And when you don't win souls like you should because you're too busy doing other things, that's not easy to see. I mean, they're just not people coming like they should. And so you're, I'm just telling you that things like that need attention because they become tools by which we reach into our community and by which the community around us learns who we are and begins to have an idea of what kind of things are going on here at this church. I want to challenge everybody in here. Don't sit in the pew in 2024 with the idea that I really like the church. I'm just going to come to church and then I'm going to go to home and forget about it. Listen, get involved with your heart. Amen. Get involved with your time. Get involved in things that are meaty. And you'll find there's lots of things that could be done and need to be done around here. And I'd say this, the best way for this immediate area to find out about Northwest Baptist Church is to look at our website, get a feel of who we are, to look at our property. And they've been driving by here. And thank God for Brother Darren, who realized that we had some nice shrubs out there along the road so big that you could hardly see this church behind the shrubs. <laughs> People drove by here and said, Northwest Baptist Church, there's a church over there on 34th Street at Ella. I went by there a hundred times. I didn't see it. And so we've cut those trees down. We are looking to this big sign that's going to be up out there so that people can see us. And I long to see the day there's a steeple over here. I, don't, I have no interest in a steeple company, but I will tell you that when people uh, see steeples up there, uh, they know it's a church. You know, we're still in a country that recognizes it's a house of God. 
And so I hope that some things will happen like that in our days that are ahead when people can see a lot about us and get some ideas about us from our sign, from our building, from our steeple out there. But the best, the best way for people to learn about us is to come to this building. Come and walk in these doors. And see how they're treated at the front door or the side door. See how many people say, hello, hey, we're glad you're here, and turn away. That's the people who say, we're glad you're here, and they see it, and they hear it in the voice. And they realize we're not just running you through the ringer here. Miss Judy brought a friend of hers today who's sitting right here beside her. She's here for the first time. It would be interesting to know that after this service, how she feels about us. What she felt in the singing. What she felt in the preaching. What she felt in the fellowship before and after the service. We ought to be putting forth a good record. It ought not to be outside only. It ought to be from my heart that we care about people. Because brothers and sisters, the reality is when people come to Northwest Baptist Church, we ought to really care about who they are. We ought to care about getting them into here. We ought to care about their souls and where they're going to spend eternity. We ought to care about how their lives are going. We ought to care enough to invest ourselves in the community and open this door and have more people come in here so they can see this is not a church that's dying. It's a church that's alive. It doesn't just have a program of music going on, have a big program of activities for kids going on. Here's a church where Jesus Christ is, where when people go to Northwest Baptist Church, they can hear, see him in the lives of the people who go there and realize, I haven't met people like this in many places before. This is a changed people. These people read in their pulpit, if any man be in Christ Jesus is a new creature, and I go in that church and I see some people that are not like I've been used to seeing. Maybe they won't know for a while what's really the difference. But hopefully they'll come enough and begin to see what changed his heart. That there's a God in heaven who can change lives. Amen. Who can put men on a new path. There's a God in heaven who can take that old guy or lady who says, that's just the way I am. I'm a physician or I'm an engineer or I'm a preacher. You just have to take me like it. We don't have to do it. That's a cop out by anybody. The reality is God can change you. And if he's not changing you, it's not his fault. It's yours because he will not allow the spirit of God in your life to work in your life like it should as long as we're quenching him, as long as we're in charge. It's yielding that's a secret. It's humility that's a secret of God. <clears throat> that ought to be obvious here. Neighbors all around us should be able to see that, yes, there at Northwest Baptist Church, um, we see... We see the Lord in people's lives. Um, I just want to talk for a moment about you and God. Just you and God. I said I wanted to talk about Sardis, the town. I wanted to talk about Northwest Baptist Church and what God thinks about us. And if we got a letter from God like the church in Sardis did, what would it say? But I want to talk about what God thinks and what the community thinks about you personally. Every one of us lives in a different place. Some, some, some of us, husband and wives, live in the same place. But most of us, we're spread out. You go to work, probably not anybody else in the church around you uh, goes to that same work. You are in a different group, group of people out there where you work. And I want to tell you, 
They ought not to have to ask you if you're a Christian. I've said lots of times, and I won't repeat it right here, friends. It is a disgrace. It is a slam to your face for you to have to tell somebody you're a Christian. It's okay to say it, but they ought to see something different before you say it. They ought to be able to recognize in you something that they don't see ordinarily in the people around them. They ought to recognize that there is something new about you. It's changed your way of talking. You don't stand around the fountain and tell dirty jokes. And you don't cuss like they do. And you don't do a lot of the things they do and laugh at ugly things like they do. They can see you're different. Where you work. Where you shop. Your kids. Your grandkids. Look into your life and they say, there's something different about my pa, something different about my granny, something different about my dad, something different about my mom. I am grateful to know that they belong to Jesus Christ. In our lives, we meet lots of people. I doubt that we meet as many Christian people as we think. I suspect, as this letter suggests to the church in Sardis, that we meet a whole lot of people who say they're Christian but they're not 2% different from the people around who don't say they're Christians, who don't claim it. I'm talking about a change of life that shows in what you do and how you behave and how you react, especially to, to adversity. When somebody's on your case. When something's not going your way, that's when you usually see the real metal who is in a person and what they're really made out of. So if we took a poll in your family and said to them, what do you think about your mother, your dad? And we could get them to be honest, off their horse and trying to please, but just get them to be honest. How many would say, I'm not happy with what I see? I read the Bible, but I don't see in my mother or my dad or my brother or sister or my preacher what I see in the Bible. Talk about what people think about you personally, not just what they think about the church, but what they think about you. And you got that letter from God. What do you think it would say? Oh, brothers and sisters, every one of us has a name. Every one of us has a name, personal name. And every one of us should be our ambassador. We heard it read right up here this morning from this pulpit, right out of the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, you're ambassadors for Christ. You represent him. You're supposedly born again, changed into a new family. You represent Jesus Christ. So how's it going? How's it looking out there to the people around you? Can they see it in you? Or do you have to tell them that you are? And then they laugh and say, well, I don't see it. I don't see any real difference in behavior. Not only did the church in Sardis have a name, not only does Northwest Baptist Church have a name, but every individual in this room has a name, personal name. You take some names like Adam. All of a sudden, a little sparkler goes off. Doesn't Adam? Yeah, yeah, boy, he sinned. He did our thing with Eve. And then you look at a name like uh, Eve. Oh, what kind of beauty was she? What do you think about her sex life? I mean, you just think about all those things, you know, and you. You have an idea. It just immediately comes to mind. You don't have to invent it. You've heard enough to know. You have a position in your head. 
a name for Eve. And then if we come by to somebody like Moses, yeah, boy. And what about Billy Graham? Yeah, yeah, he's one of our guys in our day. Uh, What about Sheila Jackson Lee? What do you think? What do you think about our new mayor here in our town here? What do you think about him? What do you think about people like Donald Trump? Or Joe Biden? They sure bring some thoughts, don't they? You just have to be living under two rocks, not just one to not to heard these names and have some opinions about these people. What about Abraham Lincoln? What do you think about Big John Wayne? Names we all know. What about Martin Luther King and Bill Clinton? What would you think about Adolf Hitler? What kind of name does he have? And we think about those, and we say, yes, buddy, I don't have to think twice. I have a name. They all come to my mind. I know what, I know what they were. I have my own opinion about them. What about your mate? I expect everybody here, if we wrote those names on a board like this, and gave you a marker, you could come right there, and you could write beside every name, good, bad, really bad, awful, really good. Yeah. Nobody had to prompt you. You probably wouldn't do it, but you could. You know you could. In your own heart, it just pops right into your mind when you hear that name, group of names go by you. For the better or for the worse, thou hast a name. <clears throat> That's the message that comes flying through here. I hope you have a good name with men. I hope you have a name that's respected and honored. But I realize that's not a given. It's not a guarantee that you have a good name with men. That's the reason I asked earlier in this service, think about yourself. It's a good time to take an inventory. If you're too much afraid to let somebody else give you a critique, then at least critique yourself and be honest about it. And check out your record. Check out what people think about you. People are watching. They are making decisions. You're forming your reputation as you go. It's just forming all along by the decisions and acts you do all along the way. I wonder which of these fit you. These words. Intolerant. Quick-tempered. Humble. Reasonable. Unreasonable. Hot-headed. Fake. Two-faced. Kind, full of self, level-headed, greedy, trustworthy, Christ-like. There's a whole lot of other adjectives out there, you know, that could be put. If you had your name and you put under it all those descriptions, which ones fit you, and then let your mate take your name and put the descriptions that fit you, I just wonder how much alike they'd be. I wonder how much difference there is in what you think and what God thinks and what the people around you think. I will tell you, you shall know them by their fruits. The Bible says you shall know them, and that's the way it is. Whether you like it or not, that is the way life is. Your actions, your words, your attitudes, your behavior good or bad, marks you, and people know you by your fruits. You say, well, they shouldn't judge me. They don't have to judge you. They just look at the fruit. You say, hey, this is not right. The Bible talks about real fruit from a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And that's not just loving the lovely. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love and it's peace. How many people do you know, including yourself, who have real peace in your heart? Real peace. A fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. How many people do you know, including yourself, do you find moaning and griping about our society? Griping about our church, griping about our preacher, griping about blah, 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 blah. Boy, I'm telling you, it's more common than it is to see people rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. We have to beg people sometimes at Thanksgiving to count your many blessings, name them one by one. Even though daily the Lord loads us with benefits, still so many, not just people who don't know the Lord, <clears throat> but people who claim to be Christians, complain about what they don't have rather than thanking God for what they do have. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And it goes on with goodness and gentleness and finally ends up with temperance or control down there. And that's the key, really. And so if you want to look at yourself and see where you stand with God, look at the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Read it for yourself and memorize those. See all those nine fruit that are mentioned right in there. And then look in your mirror and say, how many of those can I see? How many of those can my people see at work? How many of those people can neighbors see? How many of those traits can my kids see and my grandkids see in me? And I want to just tell you, this is not a message about the Holy Spirit. But if you know Christ as your personal Savior, really know him. I don't mean you've just made a profession of faith. You come down and join the church. You got baptized. I mean, if you met Christ in your heart. You gave up on all you were and trusted him as your personal savior. If that happened, you're supposed to be a new creature. And the Holy Spirit of God, if you are indeed, lives in you. You realize that? The Holy Spirit of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all one, three in one, they live in you. Each one with the same attributes and powers of the other one. It's no small thing to think that the Spirit of God living in your heart, in your body. But for most people, they're less familiar with the Holy Spirit of God than they are with their dog. Here, him supposed to be intimate. You're supposed to be aware of him. But most of us are going, oh, we're aware of politics. We're aware of problems in the neighborhood. We're aware of things at home we don't like. The Holy Spirit. What? Who's he? He's living in you. Say, so why, why don't I see him working in me? Let me tell you, the problem's not him. He works in people who yield and give to his spirit. Let him control their lives. And you cannot, on your own strength, produce consistent love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, temperance, all those things. You cannot do those on your own. They're impossible to do on your own. But when you yield to the Holy Spirit of God, and he's controlling your life, and you know how he controls your life, read here and see if what you're doing is of God. Reading this book, it's God's book. He says, this is, this is what to do. Don't lie. Don't cheat. You say, I've tried. I can't do it. No, you can't do it, and God knows it. But when you yield to the Spirit of God, the greater is he that is in you and that he's in the world. Amen. Let me tell you, he can take control of your life, and he can produce fruit. I've never seen a peach on a tree that tried to be a peach on a tree. The peach on the tree was abiding in the, in the branch. 
and it just automatically happened. It's the flow from the peach tree through the branches that produces the fruit out there. Let me tell you as a believer, it's the Holy Spirit living in your life, flowing you in control of your life that produces love, joy, peace, the things you can't do by yourself. I'm telling you, when people see that fruit, they'll see something different about you. They'll realize that you have something they need. They'll be asking you in many cases about what you have. And you'll get an opportunity to sit down and just lay out the message of Jesus Christ, who is the hope of sinners and the only hope that sinners have. Yes, people are watching. But I want to tell you who's watching most is God. He's got the straight of it. He sees the heart. He searches the deep things of the heart. These scriptures you see up here in front of you in just a moment, those scriptures are talking about how that he knows your you, the real you. He's the one and the only one that's truly qualified to write you a letter about you. And he knows, first of all, whether you belong to him or whether you just made a profession of faith. Church friends and visitors here today, It pains me, having been in this ministry a long, long time and read this book, Bible, through a lot of times, it pains me when I think of how many people go to church and how many people don't seem to know the Lord. They don't have any real fruit in their life. No difference for the better. I don't know. I have to just look and say, I don't see the fruit. I see very little of it. I'm not your judge but let me tell you, God is the final judge of everybody every time. And God's not sleeping. He's not on a trip. He's not limited. He knows who you are. He knows what has happened in your heart. He knows whether your profession of faith was genuine or whether it was fake. And I say to you, you have a name with people. You have a name with God. And the Bible says, whosoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the truth of how it is. We're all passing through this world. We have one lifetime, and it's sometimes shorter than others. Some it's 20 or 30 years, some maybe 60 or 70. But you have one time to live and come to Christ. All the evidence is there. The heaven declare the glory of God. You can look at the sun and the moon and realize somebody had to make this wonderful place. You breathe this air, you see all these trees and all this chlorophyll, all these special things going on. You realize there's order everywhere I look, there's design here. There had to be a designer, a God who made the heaven and the earth and who made me. And I'm breathing his air. I'm walking on his ground. I'm living in this body that he led me to have. We live our lives with all this evidence and have this one pass, just one pass to come in our heart to the end of ourself and realize I'm a sinner I can't make it to heaven on my own I've tried to be good I've tried to commit quit committing so many sins and these evil thoughts and I can't I can't be good enough God gives an opportunity call a life to come to a realization of he's there and we can't make it and come in his word to this great message, which he's symbolizing the Lord's Supper. He came in this world, God in person, took your sins and mine, 
I couldn't do it. You can't. He took it because he took our sin in his own body and he went to the cross, literally went to the cross. Willfully, nobody made him do it. The Romans couldn't do it. The Jews couldn't do it. Your sins and my sins put him to the cross and he did it willfully, knowingly went to that cross. Endured all that abuse, the beatings, the cursings, the swearing, the rejection, and hanged up there, nailed to a cross, feet and hands, and a spear through his side, and out came the blood. God's sacrifice of his own self in our place. We have one lifetime to come to real grips with reality. We're going to die. We all know that. It's just a matter of time. What would you do with Jesus, who's called the Christ, when Pilate was betraying, was on, Jesus was on trial, he was presiding over the trial. And the Jews were saying, let him be crucified. And he said, I find no fault in him. He finally stood and said to that multitude, what then would you do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? Most of the people said, let him be crucified. A few people trusted him. They received forgiveness eternal life. That's a question you have to deal with. What are you going to do with Christ? What is your name? Is it written in the book of life? Or is it absent out of there? If you're going to go to heaven, you've got to get your name on the book of life while you're living. Because once you're gone from here, there's no more opportunity. No dead corpses out there are ever writing anything or saying anything or believing anything. They're just rotting. That's all. You have to decide today what is your name? Not what I think it is, but what does God think your name is? Because he's the one that really counts. I'm going to ask you to stand together. We're going to have an invitation. I'm going to ask you if you've never come to Christ to do it today. You can. Right there in your heart, you can trust him as your own personal Savior. And I plead with you.